wonderful day of worship so far. It's always a blessing to be together, to worship God on the first day of the week. So good to see all of you this morning. It was Easter Sunday of this year, about three weeks ago. And after church, uh, my family and I decided to go to one of my favorite restaurants to eat, and that is Joe's, Joe's Crab Shack. I love going to Joe's Crab Shack. And so we didn't have to wait for a table very long. We got our table, and eventually the waiter asked me, he's like, what do you want to eat? What's your order going to be? And I said, I'm going to get the, the same thing that I usually get, which is a plate of a fried shrimp, some french fries, and a Diet Coke. He asked Shawn Michael, young man, what are you going to eat? And he said, I want to get some fried shrimp, some french fries, and a Diet Coke. He asked Faith, young lady, what do you want to eat? She says, I want to get a pepperoni pizza, light <laughs> sauce at a seafood place, mind you, and some french fries. Now here's my question. My question is, why did those kids order that? Why did those two children order the food that they ordered. Well, in the case of Shawn Michael, the answer is pretty obvious. He ordered some fried shrimp, some french fries, and a Diet Coke because I did. He was copying me. He was modeling my menu on that occasion, and so was Faith. You see, whenever we order pizza at home, I always get my pizza made the same way every single time, pepperoni, with very light sauce. Both of my children in that moment were copying me. They were imitating me. They were copying my diet on that occasion. And the truth is, that's the way it's always been. That's the way it's always been. Since the time both of them were very small, both of them have always been watching me like a hawk. They follow me. They question me. They stare at me. They even imitate me. They even ask for the same stuff to be put on their hamburger that I want on my hamburger, which is nothing. Meat and cheese only. I've been eating it that way since I was a, since I was a small child. They both like the same sports that I do and the same kind of athletes that I do. And they like the same kind of movies. They have similar senses of hum humor. And in the case of Shawn Michael, some of you have pulled me aside before and you've told me in private that you've seen him in the hallway watching me very carefully and trying to stand like me and even walk like me. Some of you told me that before, right? That's how my life is every single day. And let me just ask you, for, for those of you who are parents this morning, you're raising kids, do you have to go through the same thing? Like me, if you're raising kids right now, do you constantly experience your children trying to model and imitate and do everything that you do? There's a huge responsibility attached with that, right? There's a huge responsibility attached to the fact that our children are watching us all the time and even imitating us. They're learning from us. We're actually providing them with a model 
or template in so many different aspects of life. In fact, one of the biggest models or templates that we are providing for them every single day is found in that right there. It's found in marriage. It's found in the interaction and the relationship we have with our spouse. I mean, I think we can all agree this morning, especially for Christians, the relationship we have with our spouse is the most sacred relationship that we have with another human being. It is a relationship created by God himself. It is a relationship that is designed to be a blessing both to the man and to the woman. It is a relationship where if a man and a woman, a husband and a wife have children together, those children are watching that relationship every single day. Every single day. Our children are seeing a model for marriage. They are seeing a picture of marriage. They are seeing a sermon for marriage. The question is, it says their parents, what kind of sermon are we preaching to them? What kind of model are we giving them? What kind of example are we giving them to mirror and imitate if they find themselves in this same kind of relationship at some point in the future? Well, if you don't mind, this morning in this study, I want to give you four things. Four things that God says our kids should see in our marriages. I want to give you four things that God says our kids should see in our marriages. And the first thing is this. The first thing that God wants kids to see in marriage is, number one, he wants them, he wants them to see discipleship. Discipleship. Individual discipleship. I think we need to start right here this morning. Before we go anywhere else this morning, we need to understand that if our children are going to see a good model for a husband or a good model for a wife, they first need to see a good model for a Christian. They first need to see a good model of a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. They first need to see a parent who is making time every single day to read their Bible and pray. They first need to see a parent who is excited about times like this. Times we can come together on the first day of the week to worship God in spirit and in truth. They first need to see a parent who is willing to share their faith with others. And who is willing to invite their friends, parents to church and who is willing to tell that coach, hey, we're not going to be able to make practice of that, all that ball game on Wednesday night because we're going to Bible class. They first need to see that parent. Or hear that parent who speaks in a godly manner at all times and who is willing to admit mistakes and failures and is willing to ask for forgiveness and who truly loves God with all their heart, soul and might. As Jesus requires, according to Matthew 22 and verse 37, you see, if I'm not if I'm not first a genuine disciple, if I'm not first an authentic, real and non hypocritical disciple, no other spiritual lessons I try to teach my children will be effective. If I'm not first the real deal as a Christian, 
I'm not going to have much influence with my children when it comes to trying to teach them spiritual lessons from the word of God. I think about so many passages from the Bible when it comes to this. I'm reminded of a very known, well-known passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, remember what Paul said about Timothy. He said, I'm mindful of the sincere faith. I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois. And in your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Notice how Paul says that Timothy, the preacher Timothy, had a sincere faith. He had a genuine faith, an authentic faith, a real faith, a non-hypocritical faith. That was Timothy, but where did he get that from? Well, Paul says he first got that from his grandmother and his mother. They had a real faith, a genuine faith. A sincere, non-hypocritical faith, and that impacted Timothy. That helped Timothy develop his own sincere faith. That's what Paul says. Now, you put that with what you find in the book of Deuteronomy this morning. Please go with me in, the, in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Deuteronomy chapter 6, parents, if you don't have these verses marked in your Bible, then you're making a big mistake. You need to do it this morning. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning with verse number 4, not long before the children of Israel would finally conquer the promised land, Moses told the Israelite parents this in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, hear, listen carefully. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Notice how here Moses, the great man of God, the great deliverer of God's people, he talks about one of the great responsibilities that has been given to parents. Moses says that one of the great responsibilities that has been given to parents, especially parents who are supposed to be servants of God, is the responsibility to teach. It is the responsibility to teach their children about God and his word and his way. It is to create an atmosphere in the home that is all about God and all about learning about God and all about loving God. Doing that is far more important than helping our children excel in school. Doing that is far more important than helping our kids have the highest GPA or to be the best athletes in their sport or to be the best musicians that they can be. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with helping our children excel in those kinds of things, but think about this. If our children are the best athletes and have the highest GPA and have the best job that pays them a lot of money one day and they lose their soul, then what good was that stuff for them in the first place? They got the best GPA, they're the best athletes, and they don't love God. They don't serve God. What have they really accomplished? Teaching our kids the word of God. You see, if achieving success in school and sports is the top priority in our homes right now, then I'm going to be I'm going to be blunt with you. As parents, we have totally missed it. We have totally failed. We are not being good stewards 
of these precious children that had come from God. Moses tells these parents, make sure you put first things first. Make sure you tell your children and teach your children about God. In fact, Moses says that if you really want to be effective in teaching your children lessons about God, then make sure you are first living the teaching. Make sure that you first love the Lord your God, verse 4. Make sure that you first love God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. Verse number five, make sure that the commandments of God are first in your heart. Verse number six, you see here Moses wanted these parents to understand that they could not expect their children to take any of the spiritual lessons that they were trying to teach them very seriously if they don't first see them taking the teaching seriously if they didn't first see them applying the teaching into their own lives you see as a father as a parent i can expect to show my children how to have a godly marriage if i am not first godly if i am not first committed to god above anything else my children your children our children need to see a parent who is truly committed to God, but not only do they need to see a parent or parents who are truly committed to God, secondly, they also need to see a parent who is truly committed to their spouse. A parent who is truly committed to their, to their spouse. For those of you who are married this morning, and that's a lot of you here, many of you are married this morning. Some of you have been married for a very long time, and may God bless you. For those of you who have been married for a long time, or you're just married, Whatever, if you're married right now, I want you to do something for me. I want to ask you something. Do you remember the day when you got married? You remember the day when you got married? Ladies, you remember, you remember how your dress looked? Men, you remember how your suit or your tuxedo looked? Do you remember who was in the audience? Do you remember who was part of the ceremony? Do you remember who officiated the ceremony? Do you remember what you said? Do you remember your vows? Do you remember the promises you made on that day? I want to suggest that if you, what you said on that day was anything similar to what Janice and I said to each other on the day we got married, then it probably went a little something like this. I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife or lawfully wedded husband to have and to hold for richer or poor, through sickness and health, until death what? Until death does us part, until death separates us. Did your vows sound anything like that? If they did, then I want you to know something. That was biblical. Those vows were rooted in Bible teaching. Go in your Bible with me to Matthew, the 19th chapter, please. I'm going to Matthew, the 19th chapter, and we're going to read about Jesus in Matthew, the 19th chapter, and in verse number 1, in Matthew 19 and verse 1, the scripture says, When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Verse 2, And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Well, therefore, God is joined together. Let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, I know, I know that so often, so often when we read those verses, what we like to do when we read those verses is we like to focus on the last verse we just read. We like to focus on verse nine, don't we? We love us in verse number nine. We love to point out how Jesus says that there is an exception. We love to spend all our time talking about how according to Jesus, if your spouse cheats on you, if your spouse is unfaithful to you, then guess what? You can divorce your spouse. You can end that relationship. You can put them away for sexual immorality. We love we love going through that verse. We have no problem breaking it down, dissecting it, putting up charts, breaking down all the Greek words in that verse. We have no problem doing that. And yet I submit to you that that verse is not the main point of this section. That verse is not the main point of this section. That, that verse is not what this section is all about. You see, the main point of this section here it's not about finding a way out of your marriage. Instead, the main point of this section is about how it is God's will from the beginning for you to stay in your marriage. That's what Jesus talks about in the five verses that come before verse nine. We want to focus on one verse. What about what he said in the, in the previous five verses? Why don't we want to talk about that? In the five verses that come before verse nine, Jesus is not preaching about divorce. He's preaching about commitment. He's preaching about the will of God from the beginning. He's preaching about how from the beginning has been God's will for a man and a woman to be joined together in marriage and stay together to be committed to each other for a lifetime. These verses are not divorce passages. These are commitment passages. They're about commitment, and that's certainly a radical concept in our society. Wouldn't you agree? That, that is certainly something that is counterculture. I mean, I don't know about you, but to me, when I look around in our culture, and our society, it seems like that for so many couples, when they get into marriage, they go into marriage with this mentality of, well, you know what, we'll just give this a try. We'll just kind of test drive this a little bit. We'll see how it goes. If we don't get along, if it doesn't go too well, if we grow apart and fall out of love, well, we'll just go to the courthouse and we'll go to the paperwork, the legal process, several this, several this thing and move on. That mentality, my dear friends, is why marriage in our society is broken. It is why half of all first time marriages in this country in a divorce. It is why 60% of all second marriages end in divorce. It is why 73% of all third time marriages end in divorce. It is why more and more people in our culture are deciding to not get married at all. It is why for so many couples, especially young couples, for them, marriage is down and cohabitation is up. 
For many young couples, you know what they'd rather do? They'd rather just live together. They'd rather cohabitate, be together in sexual immorality, and pretend like they are married instead of committing to each other in this holy, sacred relationship created by God. That is the kind of world that our children are growing up in today. That is the kind of model or blueprint that is being glorified by the world to them and being preached by the world to them. The question is, is what are we preaching to them in our homes? What are they seeing in our homes? In the place we call home are our children seeing the true will of God when it comes to marriage. Are they seeing commitment? Are they seeing dedication? Are they seeing two people who truly love each other and they are determined to stay together no matter what, no matter what arguments and disagreements come up? No matter what problems come their way and what adversities they face, no matter what changes take place in their lives, no matter who loses a job, no matter who gets sick, no matter who gets sick, no matter who gets gray hair or wrinkles or who, or who goes bald, these two people, no matter what comes their way, they're going to stay together. They're going to keep loving each other. They're going to stick together no matter what. They're going to continue to love each other and stay in love with each other. They're not going to harden their hearts to the will of God. As Jesus says, these people were doing. They're not going to jump ship when things get tough. Instead, they're going to be true to the promises they made on the day they got married. They're going to be committed. They're going to stay together no matter what. I submit that if our children see that, if our children see that kind of commitment in our marriages, that's going to impact them in a powerful way. That is going to provide them with a great model for them to imitate if they decide to get into this relationship themselves at some point in the future. Our children need to see discipleship in marriage. And they need to see commitment in marriage. And then thirdly, you know what else they need to see? You ready for this? They need to see some romance. Oh, yes. They need to see some romance. Did you know the Bible talks about romance? Did you know the Bible talks about romance and marriage? If you didn't know that, there's a book you need to read in the Bible, but it's all about that. You know what it is, don't you? It's called Song of Solomon. Blow the dust off of Song of Solomon with me this morning. The Song of Solomon is all about the importance of sexual intimacy and romance in marriage. It's a book that we neglect so often to our detriment. In Song of Solomon chapter 1 and in verse number 15, in Song of Solomon chapter 1 and verse number 15, the Bible says, how beautiful, this is Solomon and, his, and this woman he loves speaking to one another, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our houses are cedars, our raptors, cypresses. Now, during this time here, when they're speaking these words in the story, we need to understand that they're going through the courtship. They're dating. Those of us who are married, we, we went through that, right? Well, they're going through that here. How do I know that? Well, go to chapter 3. In chapter 3, as the story progresses, it says in verse number 11, in chapter 3, verse 11, Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his what? 
on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. Now they're married. In chapter one, they're dating. They're being romantic with each other during the courtship, but now they are married here. And so in chapter four, in chapter four, in verse number one, it says, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that has descended from Mount Gilead. Drop down to verse number four. In verse four, it says, your neck is like the tower of David built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields all round the shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are, two, are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Now, what's going on here? Well, we just saw the wedding day at the end of chapter three. This right here is the honeymoon. This is the, the night of the honeymoon. There's romance being done here on the night of the honeymoon, but does it stop at the honeymoon like so many people think it does, the romance? Well, go to chapter seven. Because in chapter seven, they're married for a little bit now. And it says in verse number one, how beautiful are your feet and sandals, O princess daughter. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet, which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Beth Rabin. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which faces toward Damascus. Look at verse number 10. Notice what she says to her man in verse 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me, not for somebody else. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Go to chapter 8 and notice how the book closes in chapter 8 and verse 13. In chapter 8 and verse 13, O you who sit in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. Hurry, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. Here's my question. Here's my question. How did you feel? How did you feel when I read those verses out loud just now? How did you feel when I read those verses out loud? Did you feel uncomfortable? Did you squirm a little bit in your pew? Did you blush a little bit? Did you even think to yourself, well, I don't know what he's doing. I don't think those kind of verses are appropriate to be read in a setting like this. My friend, if you thought those kinds of things, I want you to understand something. I want you to remember who put those verses in the Bible. I didn't put those verses in the Bible. You know who put those verses in the Bible? The Holy Spirit did. God put those verses in the Bible. God wants those verses in the Bible because this is what he wants for our marriages. This is what he wants for my marriage. This is what he wants for your marriage. Like Solomon and his bride had in their marriage, God doesn't just want us to love our spouse. He also wants us to be in love with our spouse. He also wants us to be passionate about our spouse and to speak kind words to our spouse and to constantly be romantic and even intimate with our spouse. In fact, if this kind of behavior that you find in the Song of Solomon is not found currently in your marriage, you need to ask an important question right now. You need to ask the question of why? Why isn't this in your marriage? Why isn't this kind of romance in your marriage right now? Is it because you've allowed the devil to creep into your marriage? 
Is it because you've allowed the devil to creep into your heart? Is it because you got wandering eyes right now? Your eyes are not fixed on your spouse. Your eyes are looking somewhere else. You're flirting with somebody else. Your heart is fluttering for somebody that you don't have a right to be with. Is that why you don't have any romance in your marriage right now? I want you to think about another passage from Solomon here. In Proverbs chapter 5, now Brother Stan read this section for us this morning, some of these verses. I want to highlight one. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 19, where Solomon is talking about his son. He's giving him advice for marriage. And he says, as a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast, the woman you marry, satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Now, for those of you familiar with the book of Proverbs and for those of you who are paying close attention to the verses Stan read this morning, let me ask you something. Do you remember the context? Do you remember the context that this verse is found in? It's a great verse. I love this verse. But do you remember the context of this verse? Do you remember how in the context of this verse, Solomon is warning his son against the pitfall of adultery? He is warning his son against the pitfall of unfaithfulness. He is telling his son that one of the safeguards against adultery and unfaithfulness in your marriage is being in love with your spouse. Be in love with your spouse. Be close with your spouse. Be romantic and even exhilarated or intoxicated, some translations say, with the love of your spouse. In fact, that is something that our children need to see. That is something that our children must see. If we want our children to echo a romantic relationship with their spouse one day, then they first need to see us model that in front of them. They need to first see us holding hands with our spouse. They need to first see us dressing up for our spouse and going on date nights with our spouse. They need to first see us and trying to impress our spouse and constantly complimenting our spouse and flirting with our spouse. They need to see us making anniversaries and Valentine's Days, special days for our spouse. They need to first see us holding hands with our spouse and even kissing our spouse. At our house, our kids see Sean and Gigi kiss all the time, and every time Faith goes, ew, that's disgusting. And I say to her, get over it. <laughs> you need to get over it. This is my wife. This is good. In fact, when you get you a husband one day, this is exactly what you need to be doing. Our kids need to see romance between mommy and daddy. In fact, let's just be honest about it. Don't our kids want to see that? They really want to see that. They may go, ooh, and that's disgusting, but our kids rather see their parents in love with each other than seeing their parents constantly fight and argue and be uncomfortable around each other and act as though they're only together because they have to be together and not because they want to be together. Our kids need to see discipleship, commitment, romance. And then let's close with this. In our marriages, they also need to see, they need to see God. They need to see Jesus, as we mentioned earlier in this lesson. And as Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 19, God is the one who created marriage. God is the one who blesses marriage. God is the one who joins two people together in marriage. God is the one who is part of marriage. 
Think about that. God is part of marriage. God is part of every marriage. He is part of my marriage and he's part of your marriage. In fact, God wants all of our marriages to reflect him. To reflect his son, to reflect the relationship that his son has with his bride, which is the church. Isn't that the point of Ephesians chapter 5? That's the whole point of Ephesians 5. Look at Ephesians 5. This is the last place we're going to go this morning. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter. In Ephesians chapter 5, to emphasize our point here. In Ephesians chapter 5, and we start with verse number 22. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. For as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking, notice, I'm speaking with reference to Christ. And the church, nevertheless, each individual among you also, is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, if we wanted to, if we wanted to this morning, we could stay here another hour and just break all this down. We could do that, but we don't have time to do that. We don't have time to dissect every part of this. For now, I just want you to meditate on those verses, and I want to ask you a question. I want to know, I want you to think about this. Do our marriages, do our marriages reflect what's being taught in those verses? Do our marriages reflect the kind of relationship that Jesus has with his church? Do our marriages currently have present within them men who are offering sacrificial love and godly leadership for their wives? Do our marriages currently have present in them women who are willing to submit and follow the sacrificial and godly leadership of their husbands, even in a world today with that, where that is frowned upon? Do our marriages ha have currently in them nourishment and cherishing and humility and patience and gentleness and reverence towards one another? And what about what Paul says back in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, in verse 32, where he talks about be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ also has forgiven you? Do our marriages have that? Do they have kindness? Are we being kind to our spouse? Or are we always ripping apart and tearing down our spouse? Do they have compassion, grace, tenderheartedness? Do they have forgiveness? We need forgiveness in marriage, don't we? We need forgiveness because guess what? None of us are perfect. We're all sinners. We're sinners married to sinners. Everybody makes mistakes. Do we have forgiveness in our marriages? I want to suggest that if these things, if these things are not currently found in our marriages, then we got a problem. No, let me say that better. We got a big problem. We have a huge problem. We are not modeling before our children what God wants us to model. 
God wants our marriages to model and reflect him. He wants our marriages to reflect his love. He wants our marriages to reflect the fellowship that he has with his church. This means that when we do what God commands us to do in our marriages, we are showing our children God. We are showing our children an important aspect of the love of God. We are showing our children how truly wonderful marriage can be when it is done God's way. And when it imitates the relationship that his son has with his bride, the church. And so here's the take home. Here's the point of the lesson, okay? The point of the lesson is for those of us right now who are married and we're raising children. Every day we are blessed with an opportunity. Every day we are blessed with a wonderful opportunity to provide a blueprint for our children when it comes to marriage. If we want our children to please God in their marriages someday, then we need to make sure that we're showing them how we please God in our marriages today. In fact, whether we're married or not, and whether we have children or not, that needs to be the goal, period. I don't care who we are this morning. I don't care if you're married or if you're single, if you have kids, if you don't have kids. I don't care if you're married to a person who's not a Christian. The number one goal you need to have in your life, no matter what situation you're in, is to please God. It's to please Jesus. It's to be part of the bride which is the church that belongs to Jesus. In fact, I want to close by appealing to that fact. I want to close right now by appealing to the fact that while God doesn't require you to be married or to have children to go to heaven, he does require you to be married to his son spiritually. He does require you to be part of his son's bride, which is the church. And so if you need to do that today, then we'll help you with that. You do that by believing in his son, repenting of your sins and obeying the commandment given in the Bible in Acts 2.38 to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If you will do those things, you will be part of the bride of Christ. And if you have not been faithful to Jesus, who is the head of his bride, the church, then this morning you have an opportunity to repent and express how you are greatly hurt by being unfaithful. To your Lord, and he will certainly forgive you and give you a clean spiritual slate. If that's what you need this morning, then come to the front right now. Let's sing. Let's sing together. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading? Pleading for you and for me. Why
why should we linger and heed not his mercies? Mercies for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Time is now fleeting, the moments are passing, Passing from you and from me. Shadows are gathering, deathbeds are coming, coming for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Oh, for the wonderful love he has promised, promised for you and for me. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon, pardon for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Please be seated. have a few announcements to make before we're dismissed with song number 133. If you have a contribution to make or a visitor card to turn in, uh, please raise your hand where you are seated at and it'll be brought to you a basket to place it in. Thank you, Greg, for our song leading this morning. Ryan Dart, we appreciate your good thoughts at the table. Sean, you did really good. Two really fine lessons. Nehemiah was such a good example for us to be able to follow today. And love in the home is very important. We appreciate uh, your work on those lessons. Work group number one, which is Ryan Dart and Greg Nelson's work group, will be meeting right after services. So if you're in that work group, make it to the back hallway. There's a ladies' Bible class today at 2 p.m. here at the building. And we have an elder deacon meeting also at 2 p.m. here at the building, and it's going to be followed directly by a regular elder meeting. Some things that we need to pray about this week. Rebecca Archer, which is Rebecca Willie Archer, uh, went home early because her husband, who was home sleeping after working all night, got a phone call saying his father had passed away. Found out a week ago he had a bad case of cancer, and he is gone this morning. So please keep the the whole Willie family in your prayers, and uh, especially Rebecca and Cameron as they deal with this. Our dear brother and elder Dale Sheely was ra uh, laid to rest yesterday in Montana. Uh, there is a local memorial scheduled for May 14th, which is a Saturday two weeks from now. Uh, see the today's family talk for the details. And please keep the Sheely and the Sparks family in your prayers as they travel back to Arizona. 
Some other things, we have others that have lost loved ones. Uh, and how far back do you go when you've lost a loved one? Because there's anniversaries that you deal with and birthdays and all types of other events. So keep people that have lost loved ones that are, you know, are widows and uh, widowers in your prayers and others. We have a number of people dealing with cancer. We have a number of people that have recent surgeries. We have people that are awaiting upcoming procedures and surgeries, and also some folks that are uh, waiting on the results of medical tests. We also have, as, men as mentioned in our first lesson this morning, uh, we have some that are spiritually weak here as well. They need to be in our prayers. We have recent newborn babies that we need to be thankful for. We have three expectant mothers right now. And we have some college kids that are about to either come home or go home that might be attending with us now. So please keep all of these type of people in the situations in your prayers. Our flower, flower fund could use your personal donations. If you'd like to contribute personally to it, please see Peggy or Carol. And remember to keep up your weekly Bible reading. This week we are doing Luke 14. And we meet again at 7 p.m. this Wednesday for our midweek Bible class. And if you would, stand for number 133 at this time. We praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Thank you.